Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about misconceptions. Specifically, 20 misconceptions regarding abortion. Consider this an initial approach to the topic of abortion. It's going to require multiple visits over a long period of time to get anywhere near to addressing the topic the way that it you know, truly needs to be addressed. So many people in our society feel like this is something that you can speak your mind about on a billboard or on a bumper sticker or on a 20-second soundbite on some sort of a news talk show. It just doesn't work. That actually could be one of the misconceptions. We'll see if it makes my list of 20. But before I dive in there, I want to kind of call out a kind of a quick alert, give you the opportunity to to brace yourself. I'm going to guess that whatever it is I say over the course of these 20 ideas that I've got, um, that I may be rubbing some people the wrong way here. There may be a lot of people who come away alarmed to the fact that I don't view this as an issue where there are two choices. In fact, I think abortion probably stands really way up with any of the other social issues that we might discuss as the best example of an either or fallacy, which means when I'm talking about upsetting people, if you consider yourself to be pro-life, I think you've probably made a mistake in your thinking. If you consider yourself to be pro-choice, I think you've probably made a mistake in your thinking. And the reason that I don't feel that I'm welcome in either one of those camps is that I don't take either one of those two approaches uh, at their face. And the other problem is that I don't believe that there's such an either-or choice to begin with. I think that this is a good example of that particular logical fallacy, the facet of that fallacy that suggests that there are opposing points of view, therefore they are the only points of view, and that you either need to be 100% in, by and large, to a pro-life position, or 100% in, by and large, to a pro-choice position, or that if you're neither, it's because you can't be taken seriously, because you haven't thought seriously yourself, and you have sort of a centrist apathy about the issue. Well, I think I've probably made clear by now, I don't have a centrist apathy about very many issues, and I certainly don't have a centrist apathy about this one. I consider myself to be a radical moderate, which means I'm quite comfortable looking at both sides of the spectrum on this particular either-or fallacy we're dealing with and pointing out the flaws that I see in each place. There are things from both of these positions that we describe as being pro-life and pro-choice that I reject, and because I reject them, It means that I'm somewhere in the middle here, which is where I really want to be to begin with. So what I want to do is kind of wander through these misconceptions. This is going to be a very focused episode because I'm not pretending to provide the answers. The answers are going to have to come later, most likely in the new calendar year. It's enough for now for me to point out why I think there's some mistakes here. In some ways, it may equip people who want to uh, you know, defend their position to give them the information on me that they need to equip themselves to gather together their resources. But I'm hoping what happens instead is the people who have a firmly entrenched position, and that position is based on some assumptions which may or may not be true, Uh, get an opportunity to perhaps challenge themselves so that when I speak my mind on what I think about the issue, uh, my answers to some of these misconceptions, which again, I'm not intending to provide today, but when I get there, they won't come out of left field. That the questions that I've got have been raised and my thoughts behind them have been introduced at least enough 
that if I come away with sort of a, a what might be considered to be a radical position, a radical moderate position, but still a radical position, it won't necessarily catch people completely off guard. In other words, I'm putting my cards on the table. So in no particular order and with uh, definitely a mix of things that I think are wrong on both sides of the spectrum, I'm ready to hit these misconceptions. But I'll hit it with one more sort of heads up, one more alert. The bottom line here is that most people do not approach these kinds of questions regarding an issue as emotionally charged as abortion from the perspective of truth. I'll say that again. Most people who hold firmly entrenched positions on the things that I'm going to raise today do not hold those positions because they've examined everything in a conscientious manner and applied a devotion to truth against their point of view. What they've done is they've decided for the result that they want, what do they have to believe in order to make that result better than the opposing position? And I'm starting off right up front with the idea, there is no such thing as an either or here. There is no purely opposing position. There's lots of room in between. So the first misconception I'd like to cite, it's not a choice. This is again, to talk about the bumper sticker mentality we see, this would be the bumper sticker that says it's a child, not a choice. Okay. The bottom line is it is a choice. This is pretty plain and simple, pretty easy to comprehend. It's also definitely a child. So we'll get to that in a minute. But beyond any doubt, by telling somebody that they don't have a choice to make when they patently do, it's unhelpful. A woman who is pregnant with an unwanted pregnancy has a decision to make and trying to create laws that make it impossible for that decision to be exercised it doesn't change the fact that there's a decision still to be made. So the pro-life position here probably has to be not this platitude, it's not a choice. The pro-life position probably needs to be, it is a child Therefore, this is the better choice. So that's the kind of misconceptions I'm talking about. Here's the second one. Giving birth is the only natural option to a pregnancy. I've put quotes around natural because I don't believe that our, uh, our love affair with natural law is particularly helpful. There's, you know, beyond any doubt, you have kind of a couple choices to play with here when it comes to, to natural law. First, the natural course of action when a woman is pregnant doesn't always lead to childbirth. Uh, as long as there are things in nature, like stillbirth and like miscarriages, the whole notion that pregnancy naturally leads to childbirth doesn't hold up. The other problem that I've got with it is that there's a lot of things that we do, even within obstetrics in the realm of medicine, which are not quote unquote natural. So it doesn't necessarily work to be too in love with the idea that that delivering a baby through a pregnancy is the only natural option because the woman who maybe is diabetic and pregnant at the same time, who's using insulin to keep herself healthy and alive is probably failing the same natural law standard that you would apply in the case of the woman deciding to terminate the pregnancy or in the case of the woman who doesn't take care of herself medically and ends up having uh, a miscarriage or something of that nature. Plus all of that assumes that any of us has some sort of absolute control over these things. The insurance industry, for example, and I don't know, I'm not saying this is a good thing. In some ways, it's a little bit off-putting, but the insurance industry views the entire, the entire period of pregnancy as a disability. So natural or not, it's more complicated than that. Third, there is no such thing as and no need for a right to privacy. 
I'm going to guess that our entire controversy over right to privacy, the only reason that anybody, whether liberal or conservative, finds this concept even remotely controversial is because of the abortion issue. If it weren't for that, I'm thinking that many people in our society who view themselves as politically conservative would not only agree with the concept that there is a right to privacy, but probably be rather insistent upon people exercising that right. You can't tell me that the conservative position in the United States of America today, and really throughout the Western world, isn't one that says, hey, you know, dress more modestly, shut those drapes, (laughs) don't don't talk like that in public. All these sort of things which suggest that deep down we have a feeling that there really is a right to privacy. And one of the things we find most upsetting in our society is how poorly that right to privacy is exercised. We think there is one and we wish people would exercise it more freely. So why is a right to privacy you know, controversial at all? Well, it is one of the cornerstone concepts behind the Roe versus Wade decision. So I mentioned earlier this sort of notion we have that there's such a thing as truth with a capital T. But in an issue like abortion, truth with a capital T tends to be much less important than whatever little t truth or even little white lie I have to tell myself to get what I want politically to happen. It isn't particularly good, healthy Christian philosophy. It's far more teleological than that. It's the kind of ends versus means approach that Christians so often complain about. On the other side, this notion that our founding fathers wouldn't have believed in a right to privacy or didn't specify it clearly, I think really begs the question that if we really think that those particular founding fathers saw our society as it is today, they wouldn't be screaming for a little bit more modesty as well. They wouldn't be screaming for some things to be much more private than they are. So I do believe that there not only is such a thing as a right to privacy, but it's a very conservative political position to say that we need it. Number four. Waiting periods mandated by law help women decide if they're doing the right thing when they're making an abortion decision. Again, I think you've got to ask yourself a really honest question. Was the first legislator who proposed the first waiting period in the first state legislative body really and truly making a decision? Because in his heart of hearts, he felt like he had women living in his district or she had women living in her district who really were making abortion decisions without a lot of information that they hadn't fully grasped what the procedure was, that they hadn't been availed of the opportunity to find out more about the procedure, that somewhere in the process of gathering up the money or holding your breath and writing a check for hundreds of dollars, that some sort of contemplative process hadn't taken place, and therefore this is necessary to make that happen. If so, then maybe maybe the point of view is correct. Maybe a waiting period is crucial for a woman who hasn't thought things through before she made the initial doctor appointment, before she got a consultation on what her options were and what the costs were, before she came back on another day with a check for several hundred dollars, that nowhere in that process she had thought it through well enough, or nowhere in that process the right information had been conveyed to her, at least conveyed to her in a way that she would hear, because screaming at somebody from across the street isn't exactly the best way of conveying wisdom from one person to another. My guess is that the real, the real answer here is that the person who first proposed the idea of waiting periods, whether that be a legislator, whether that be a congressman or a senator or a judge, whoever it was, probably wasn't thinking that they were helping women get information to make a tough decision. They probably were thinking that even though they can't necessarily ban abortion with the stroke of a pen, They might be able to stop abortion through this side door. And that in and of itself is an excellent example of the kind of misconceptions I'm talking about. We've got to be honest with ourselves if we're ever going to resolve these sorts of issues. And these are the kinds of 
self-deceptions, which are completely unhelpful. Number five, all choices are morally equivalent. You cannot be a hero here. I think I've alluded to this before, and I'm toying with the idea of spending a lot of time talking about it, because I can remember a conversation maybe back in the early to mid-90s, when we were first beginning to see some of the advertisements, the advertising change, and the message coming kind of both from from uh, conservatives inside the pro-choice camp and liberals inside the pro-life camp to say, hey, you know what? Maybe this is a choice. Maybe a a woman who's unhappily pregnant has more options than just have the baby, uh, bite the bullet, become a mom, set up a house, or have an abortion. That there are other choices like, you know, adoption. It's like the whole idea of having the baby and giving it up for adoption. Well, I suggested in the midst of some of that, that maybe this was an opportunity where we could find some heroes here. That maybe if we looked at those women who did decide to go ahead and proceed with the pregnancy, carry it to term, and give the baby up for adoption, most likely to a home that really wants a child and maybe cannot naturally have children of their own, that maybe it would make sense for us to to cast that in a heroic manner. And what I consistently heard from people who I found to be more conservative than me was that they were very uncomfortable calling the only right thing that this person can do heroic. In their mind, there's only one choice, and if you make any other choice, you're a villain. But just because you make the only choice that you should be able to make, um, you can't possibly be a hero that way. I think that's a terrible misconception. I think that we need to acknowledge the fact that somebody who gives up nine months, nine minutes, or nine years of their time to protect the life of another person and to put that person into a safe home is a hero. But... Hey, I could be wrong. I know that I've been told that I was wrong on this direct question regarding the abortion issue and the question of adoption. Number six, humans are in danger of of extinction. So we need to save the baby humans. Obviously, if you drive around in some big cities in America and, and enjoy reading bumper stickers, you've seen this one before, the Save the Baby Humans bumper sticker. And the idea is that there are some politically conservative people who are really annoyed by how much time politically liberal people spend worrying about whales and seals and otters and owls. Um, the Endangered Species Act has turned into sort of a politically liberal idea, but I'm not convinced it actually started that way. And so the idea here is, well, um, if we're going to spend all this time and energy and effort, if we're going to shed all these tears over, you know, an owl or a, or a salamander, we should save the baby humans too. And the misconception is, of course, this, that we, we don't have any reason, you know, to be concerned in the least that the human race is going to, you know, go out by extinction. Save the baby whales is the notion of the whales being hunted to the point in time where there's not enough whale population left to procreate. We have more human beings on this planet than any time in recorded human history. I've seen a chart of this that really puts it in a perspective. It shows from the approximate birth of Christ to the present day, the number of people in you know, millions or hundreds of millions living on the planet. And when you get all the way into the early part of the 1800s, that number is, you know, not particularly unstable. It's not that it doesn't vary, but the variations, if you look at it graphically, are not that alarming. But in the last couple of hundred years or so, the graph goes off the chart. We have more people at the very end of this graph, when you get to just the last 100 or 200 years, than we have ever had in any of the years before. In fact, probably, you know, as many as we've had in the years before put together. Um, 
the human race is in more in danger of extinction from the kind of political problems and social problems that arise from overpopulation than we ever would be by the sort of population reduction techniques that abortion so horribly represents. Number seven, without abortion, no one would be waiting for children to adopt and there would be no orphans. Okay, I don't view this as either a complaint about the misconceptions of the pro-life side or the pro-choice side. I think this one cuts across the entire political spectrum. But what it comes down to is this. We sort of have this idea in our head, perhaps from one side of the issue, that if there weren't abortion, there would be a lot more babies, and maybe a lot more of those babies would be put up for adoption, and then a lot more of those babies put up for adoption would be in the waiting homes of people who want to adopt and right now can't because there's a scarcity of infants to adopt anyway, and therefore the the costs are there and the system is overburdened by the demand outstripping the supply and all those other sort of things. So you have that one perspective. The opposite side of it, though, is this question of, you know, Aren't there still orphans out there? And will increasing the number of children in the adoption process actually resolve anything in terms of the fact that we would still have kids born who do not get adopted? And so it's one of those things where it just gets a little bit messy. But I think we make too many tightly compact decisions which don't necessarily get borne out by the way things actually function, especially when it comes to adoption. That this notion that uh, abortion is the only reason that there's you know parents waiting for a kid to adopt it and that don't have one, or that abortion is somehow some kind of a crazy solution to the issue of unwanted children in orphanages, that the fact that there's unwanted children um, not being born because they're aborted, um, and the fact that there's un- unwanted children who could have been adopted but don't get adopted, what, neither one of these things solves the other one, I guess would be the way I would word it. Number eight. The woman is a victim, too, in abortion. This is one of the core assumptions, I would say, of the pro-life movement that really doesn't hold up to the kind of scrutiny that I'm going to wait and give it at a later time. But you know, I think what I refer to this as is the they're their little lady argument, that the, the poor woman – not bright enough to think things through for herself. You know, she's, she has access to the information on the internet or from sidewalk counselors, but she just can't comprehend it all. And, you know, because of all this confusion and because of the way she's manipulated by society and, and, you know, pushed and pulled by the, by the fashion industry and all that, that, you know, she makes bad decisions because, you know, well, she's just a victim. She's a victim of all this stuff. She cannot be expected to think for herself and therefore she cannot be expected to make wise decisions. And if she makes what we would call it, maybe the bad decision of having an abortion, it's not her fault. She had really nothing to do with it. You know, she isn't ultimately the person who is in control of her body and has any say. Uh, all these things are much too complex for her. They're their little lady you're a victim too. And it is perhaps the thing that I think coalesces the feminist movement most strongly in favor of, of, of pro-choice positions, or at least in opposition to pro-life positions, because it's an incredibly condescending argument to say, well, for a woman to be just a victim in the abortion process makes a lot of assumptions about her investment and how engaged she is in decisions that impact her own body. So I think that when you see this kind of, this reaction where there's there seems maybe to pro-life people what they would consider to be a disproportionate anger coming, especially from feminist circles in the pro-choice camp. It's because they misunderstand how deeply offensive this one particular misconception is that in an abortion scenario, the woman is a victim too. No, 
I think you got to rethink that and ask yourself a question about whether or not you really believe that women in America today, as our society is constructed, are truly that powerless. And maybe if you really believe that, you should ask yourself some more serious questions about whether we shouldn't change laws, change the right to vote, um, prohibit women from running for elective office, stopping women from being judges or or doctors or, or any sort of thing where they might be potentially a harm to others if they are too ignorant to comprehend their own situation in an abortion scenario and make a wise judgment. I don't think we really believe that the woman is a, vic- a victim in this situation, because if we really believe that, even the least conservative member of the pro-life movement would have some very different attitudes about women's rights. Number nine, our nation is prepared to treat abortion as an act of murder. Well, I think what I want to do here is just sort of draw a line and say, I think anybody who really believes that that's not a misconception, anybody who really believes that even a majority of people in the pro-life camp are prepared to treat abortion as if it's an act of murder, needs to ask themselves what we do with murder, needs to think about what murder really is and how our legal system handles murder. Maybe read some case laws, maybe read some crime statistics or some crime books. Hey, at least do yourself a favor and watch a couple of Godfather movies. Watch Godfather 1 and Godfather 2. Give yourself some sense of what it is that how do we treat murder? Because I think that you're going to find on your own steam, and if not, I'll cover it later. I think you're going to find on your own steam that as a society, we are not prepared to treat abortion the way we treat murder. And it has something to do with that other misconception about the woman being a victim, too. Number 10, an unborn child is not a human person. I may be tilting my head a little bit toward the other side of the political spectrum here, but you know, I think I maybe need to speak to both groups a little bit on this question. We really get tied up into these kind of naive arguments from the pro-life perspective that once we establish that, that the child is a baby from the moment of conception, we're done. We can stop thinking. We can stop reasoning. We can stop talking. What a horrible mistake. Because part of it is you got this other side making the same decisions you're making, that there's something that we might be able to grant the other side in the debate. If we really were having a debate, we would come together. We would speak to each other. We would try on each other's ideas. We would experiment with compromises. We would give up as much ground as we possibly could. None of those things are happening. And none of those things are happening because both sides model horrifically bad behavior. So my question on this one, an unborn child is not a human person. Well, what is an unborn child going to become? Because this is really, for me, incredibly simple. And there's probably some people holding their breath because I'm about to give up what they consider to be a horrifying amount of ideological ground. But I'm not trying to defend any ideological ground. I don't own any ground here. The bottom line is that unborn child is either going to become a human person or it's going to be a dead human person. And we can argue about the the intricacies of when personhood is confirmed and when personhood exists. And that gets you into a whole bunch of really terrible places where you have some, you know, um, university professor type people and some, you know, highly intellectual people, uh, intellectual beyond the point of practical knowledge, suggesting that there's nothing wrong with, you know, killing a a two or a three year old kid, because until that kid's old enough to have memory and form their own complete sentences, they're not a person yet either. You really get into a dangerous ground that in my mind makes no sense whatsoever. There's something that happens inside our brains when we hear that somebody has gone in and and murdered somebody who's eight or seven or eight or nine months pregnant. 
that we immediately, whether we like it or not, if you have a firmly entrenched pro-choice position, you may not like this, but we immediately think two deaths there, two murders there, you know, and you have a lot of laws that are being passed and some of them are being opposed by the pro-choice movement because the, not because the laws don't make sense, because the laws do make sense. I mean, if somebody does something violently and criminally negligent and severely injures a pregnant woman, but costs her the baby at a certain point in that pregnancy, we can argue for all we want about what that point is, but no, no doubt at a certain point in that pregnancy, all but the very most pro-choice people in this country are going to grant, yeah, um, you've committed some sort of an act that at the very least have, has deprived that family of a life, a life that was close enough to being in their presence, a, a fetus that was close enough to becoming a baby, that you have more than just a a physical injury here. You've done more than just damaging somebody's kidney. And that's the issue that I've got is I have no problem whatsoever saying, Hey, at the moment of conception, what you've got is a human person. It may be a human person in a preborn state. It may be a human person that doesn't look anything yet like a human person, but um, what in the world does a human person actually look like? See, I approach this from a Christian perspective, and this is an area where I think the, pro, the pro-life movement really struggles with me, because I don't believe that life, in a Christian sense, begins at conception. I believe that life, in a Christian sense, began perhaps even an eternity ago, that before you were born, before you were even conceived, you were an idea in the mind of God, and nothing can really take that away from you. So, being too invested, I think, as Christians in this notion of when does human life begin doesn't necessarily serve the argument all that well. And again, it's a potentially dishonest position to take because it sells the entire notion of what God can and can't do short. But we'll get to that topic perhaps on another day. It's enough to say for now that I'm not the least bit bothered by whether or not this you know, preborn child is one day old, one week old, nine months old. None of that bothers me. Whatever happens in the life of that preborn child is human. It's either going to be born human or it's going to die before it gets there. Living human, dead human, those are the choices. Number 11, no one has the right to kill under any circumstances. Now, again, I, th- I find it shocking whenever I meet people who disagree, with, who disagree with my point of view on this. And my point of view on this is pretty simple. There are circumstances where certain members of our society do have the right to kill. Some of those examples may not be that hard to find. Uh, Maybe police officers have the right to kill in the line of duty if somebody is threatening them with imminent violence or threatening uh, another citizen with imminent violence. The death penalty is a concept. Whether you agree with the death penalty or do not agree with the death penalty as a concept, it certainly gives the state the right to kill certain people in certain circumstances. You know, the whole notion of self-defense is there. And I realize that I come from a very Western perspective. So I've got in my head some ideas which may not work in the most Northeastern parts of the United States of America. I think it's funny, though, when I meet people, some of the people, not all, but some of the people I meet from the, North, the, from the Northeastern parts of the United States have this mental map of the United States of America where they might get all the way to Missouri, maybe the eastern edge of Missouri. It's pretty much the arch in St. Louis where all the states up to the point of looking at the St. Louis Arch are pretty clearly defined. They know where the borders are. They have a pretty good idea of the state capitals. It all sort of makes sense. And then after the arch in St. Louis, way before you get anywhere near the capital of Jefferson City, all the rest of Missouri and all the other states further west than there, one big glob 
of you know sort of amorphous areas that don't necessarily have much definition to them until you get to California, Oregon, and Washington on the West Coast. And that's sort of their map of America. But in that big mushy middle where something like 35, 40% of our territory is, and a great many of our states, you have this notion that a, that a man has a right to protect his home. And that if you, you know, break into my home with a knife, and I happen to have a gun, if I have no other option but to shoot you to get, to, to get you out of my out of my bedroom or stop you from threatening me, it's perfectly okay. So I'm leaving one topic. I'm going to go into another. Let me kind of finish up with number 11 here because number 11, I think is obviously wrong. It begins with the assumption that no one has the right to kill under any circumstances when most of us can think of circumstances where we might be okay with it. Again, in the Northeast, they may have an idea that it's inappropriate to use gun, you know, to protect yourself if somebody's only come at you with a knife. But okay, if you have a baseball bat and they come at you with a knife and you just happen to get lucky or unlucky enough to hit the person in just the right spot, that's probably okay. I can come up with a situation where even the most liberal person in this country would let me defend myself. So if one person ever anywhere can defend himself against a violent act, then we have a right to kill. We may not be happy about it, certainly shouldn't be proud of it, but this notion that no one has the right to kill under any circumstances is kind of crazy, especially since we have a military and we have a police force and we're not afraid to use them. Number 12, our laws shouldn't allow a man to kill in order to expel an unwanted intruder from his home, even if all other options fail. Here's where you really get to the heart of this whole liberal versus conservative conversation. But to me, it gets really interesting. I'm going to make a very conservative argument, and that is that a man's home is his castle. And if you invade the castle, you're going to have to deal with the dragons. That's a very conservative point of view. It's also what I would call a pro-choice point of view. So how ironic that we consider a lot of people in the pro-life, pro-choice spectrum on the pro-life side to be very politically conservative. And yet here I am speaking words that they would probably agree with. And it all comes down to a key question. Who owns the house? And the answer to that question is going to lead us to our different drummer today. Perhaps one of the most controversial different drummers I've cited so far, but I'm pretty proud of the choice. Judith Jarvis Thompson. It wouldn't shock me if some people found Judith Jarvis Thompson to be an incredibly unpalatable person to cite as a different drummer. I don't think that's fair. I think that as a professor of philosophy, or at least now a retired professor of philosophy for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where she worked for many, many years, she has a body of work that is uh, clearly defined and very defensible. And perhaps more than a lot of other people on this issue, she has truly walked this line with a great deal of truth and integrity. If you have strongly held opinions on the abortion issue from any corner of the political spectrum, not the either-or fallacy, but also nothing in between there, if you have a strongly defined position on this issue, and you have not read her uh, paper, A Defense of Abortion, published in 1971 before Roe v. Wade, and perhaps you know one of the most widely published you know, points of view on the issue, you'll find it in most freshman philosophy textbooks that deal with you know, social issues and social philosophy, then you really and truly need to. I think it's, it's probably very disingenuine to have an opinion that the pro-choice movement has no real points to make and that it's an, in its entirety, it's a morally bankrupt and intellectually bankrupt point of view without considering strongly what Judith Jarvis Thompson has to say. 
Now, I'll be right up front about it. She is embraced by the pro-choice community as having written what they consider to be a pro-choice treatise. As a professor, Thompson engages in what she, what she has always called thought experiments. Thought experiments might be defined by some people as being purely hypothetical. Perhaps a better definition, though, is a mental exercise using hypothesis, theory, and principle. Um, this is the same kind of thinking which led to thought experiments like Schrodinger's cat and some other things. In the, in the case of Judith Jarvis Thompson, she tries to find examples where the response that we give to something that we find hideously ugly, like abortion, can be matched up with other different situations where the ugliness factor is different, but the principles might be the same. I have heard this kind of thing. The principal objection to Jer Judith Jarvis Thompson uh, and her uh, defense of abortion is that it's, quote-unquote, all hypothetical. And I dismissed that claim right up front. In fact, that point of view offends me a little bit, and it offends me as a Christian. And I'll tell you why I have a Christian objection to the dismissal of this particular approach. There was a man who lived many, many centuries ago who had some things to say which were recorded by his, his friends and followers. But the thing that I think is so, so curious to me if we can reject the arguments of somebody like Thompson on the basis of the fact that her thought experiments are hypothetical, how do we make that line up cleanly and conveniently with the fact that Jesus Christ typically did moral teaching through the telling of parables? You take the hypothetical example away from Jesus Christ, and he didn't teach all that much in any of the New Testament Gospels. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. He uses the term must not twice <laughs> for people who haven't read the Bible or haven't taken Christianity seriously, but have a notion that it's one big set of rules, the big list of rules. Well, you know what? A lot of the rules that they're referring to are rules that either came directly from the Old Testament or were referred to kind of as a reference point by other New Testament writers. Jesus didn't spend that much time talking about the rules. He did say that not one dot or iota of the law would be abolished until it was fulfilled, but then he turned around and fulfilled everything that was described prophetically and in the law of the Old Testament through the way he lived his life, especially managing the end of his life. So if you're going to approach Thompson and dismiss her work because she has the audacity to look at a problem and say, well, maybe we should look at that problem from this other perspective. Maybe somebody has a house where they don't have a lock on the door. How is that that fundamentally different from Jesus saying there was a man who built his house on the sand and there was another man across the street who built his house on the rock? Or maybe we can't trust anything Jesus had to say because the people who say they believe in him the most dismiss everything that he stood for from the perspective of the technique of moral teaching because they would rather disagree with Judith Jarvis Thompson more than they would preserve and protect the words of Jesus. So, have I just made an analogy that Judith and Jesus are the same person or have the same credibility? No. There are some things about Judith Jarvis Thompson's argument that I'm not comfortable with. But you know what? The fact that I'm not comfortable with them isn't enough. What I've been waiting for, for something like 35 years now, because I didn't encounter this particular writing in 1971, but what I've been waiting for for all these decades is for someone to come along from the pro-life perspective and make an equally credible argument to provide an answer to this defense against abortion. 
and I have not heard it. You want to talk about marching to the beat of a different drummer. There's two things I want to look for when I'm looking for somebody who qualifies for this particular, you know, this particular honor I'd like to decree. One of them is, have you changed the game? Have you introduced something into the argument which has changed the direction of the discussion and has not been contradicted? Yes, Thompson's done that. But the other thing that I look for is something else Thompson's done, which is not widely respected or widely acknowledged. And that's that she wasn't playing some sort of a straw man argument where she was setting up a, a caricature of the abortion position, the, the anti-abortion position, and knocking it down. And she also wasn't giving the pro-choice position any sort of free pass. She has a couple of things to say in her defense of abortion that I think, frankly, need to be read and reconsidered by people who consider themselves to be pro-choice. I suppose the best way for me to explain this is to say that it's really important if you get a hold of any sort of an online copy of this particular essay that you make sure you've got one that gets all the way to the last section. And the last section includes a couple of points, one being that a woman's right to an abortion does not secure her right to the death of the child. That's clearly and explicitly stated at the very end of her essay, you know, within a couple of paragraphs of the end of her essay. And far too often I've seen answers to Thompson's argument that present her essay without that section because it is much easier to accuse her of making a big mistake by not covering something when you want to leave out the thing that it is she covered because the fact that she's deferential in that regard makes it very difficult for a pro-life response to work because she's actually saying the thing that does make it morally wrong for somebody to kill a, a one-year-old or a two-year-old after birth or make it you know, completely wrong for what the woman named Susan Smith and the Carolinas did when she uh, was kind of a family annihilator uh, and you know, killed her children, that these things are wrong in the eyes of the essay, A Defense of Abortion, in ways that people who argue against Thompson's argument conveniently miss because they leave out that point. So you must read a version of the essay that gets all the way to the point of reiterating that an acorn is not a uh, oak tree. And also before it has those couple of paragraphs where she offers a couple of kind of kind of a quick couple of ideas. One of which is that a right to an abortion is one thing. A right that the abortion necessarily leads to the death of a child is a different thing. And that if we were to come up with a technique that removed the child from the woman at an extremely early age, but also protected the life of the child, that very few of the arguments she's made, by her own word, very few of the arguments she's made, uh, give anyone the right to secure the death of the child. So I think from a pro-choice perspective, if you look at some of the things that Judith Jar Jarvis Thompson grants in this essay, she grants some things that the pro-choice movement would patently reject, which puts her somewhere in the middle, perhaps still very much in the pro-choice camp, but not on the extreme edge of that camp, as she's so often portrayed as being. I mentioned that I have some objections to her point of view. I will share those objections when I get back to my uh, you know, 20 polarizing misconceptions. There's a couple of the other misconceptions I'm going to get to that I think are misrepresented or present in Thompson's essay. But for now, it may be enough to say that Judith Jarvis Thompson has both been critical of her own camp, if you can view her as being inside the pro-choice camp, and the other camp. That's good, that's good character traits for a different drummer. But she also has changed the argument in a way that is so compelling that you're more often going to see people who have a pro-life position ignoring her point of view or wishing that her point of view had never been expressed than actually bothering to answer it. It is time. In fact, it is decades past time for us to stop screaming and yelling, producing posters of 
aborted fetuses from trying to change laws in tricky ways like putting in waiting periods and all of other sort of stuff. It's time to have an honest discussion about places where Judith Jarvis Thompson was right and places where she was not right. The bottom line is you can't dismiss her point of view simply because she uses a hypothetical. Picking back up with the list of questions with number 13, the misconception that stopping abortion requires a court ruling or a set of laws or a constitutional amendment or the right man in the White House or securing both houses of Congress. You can make this list as long as you want to. There are a lot of very strongly held political assumptions, particularly from the pro-life perspective, that don't necessarily make sense. You do not have to change the laws in this country to move the culture in this country. You do, however, have to do the very hard work of engaging the culture. And part of the reason I think that doesn't happen is that engaging the culture in open conversation almost always requires compromise. Number 14. Banning abortion will save the souls of doctors and women who otherwise would abort children. I usually apologize when I talk about this particular misconception, and I apologize to anybody who consider themselves to be pro-life and yet do not, not consider themselves Christian. So if you're a pro-life you know, atheist or agnostic, if you're Jewish, if you're Muslim, if you're Hindu, um, this particular misconception may not be a problem for you. You may hold that point of view, and you may be able to hold that point of view with a lot of integrity. However, if you're a Christian, and I mean that in the, in the purest sense of the word, not just in name only, if you're a Christian, you cannot possibly believe that it's true that banning abortion will save the souls of doctors and women who otherwise would abort children if it weren't for a stringent law stopping them. If you don't understand what I'm getting at, once again, I would urge you Take a break here, read Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. Ask yourself some deep and challenging questions about what Jesus is trying to convey in the Sermon on the Mount. Because what he is telling us, especially in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount is, if your desire and your heart is committed to the idea that you really want this child dead, the fact that a law stops you doesn't do anything to absolve you from the sinfulness of what would have been your behavior. It is, what, it is what is in the heart that matters most. If you change the heart of a person, you don't have to worry about banning the procedure. But if all you've done is ban the procedure, and you haven't addressed the heart of the person, you haven't saved anyone's soul. But this, of course, begs the question that I'm talking to a Christian audience when I'm talking to the pro-life position on this misconception. Number 15. There is no special relationship between a mother and her fetus. I mentioned earlier that there might be some chinks in what otherwise could be a pretty strongly worded position of uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson in her essay, A Defense of, of Abortion. And I think it's right here. You can make analogies to people who don't have a relationship with each other. You can make comparisons to acorns and oak trees and do all those other sort of things you want to. But you really can't get around the fact that there actually is a special relationship, typically a biologically special relationship, between a mother and a fetus. And that that's going to take us in some places that we might not necessarily go if the analogies that we would otherwise use fall along the lines of self-defense between somebody, uh, a man and a home invasion, you know, burglar or something like that. Number 16, wealthy women who want an abortion can be stopped by U.S. laws or courts without confiscating their passports 
or putting them under arrest. Women with resources who want an abortion, can they be stopped in the United States from getting an abortion? Unless you at least take away their passport or put them under house arrest. I would say the answer to that question is no, and that this misconception has to be obvious to us, that at some point the extreme execution of a pro-life position gives the state the power to kidnap women and hold them against their will in you know, hospital cells or in, in some sort of a, of a carefully guarded room where they can't do any harm to themselves and no one else can come and do harm to them or their unborn child until such time as the child is born. If you take an extreme position from both camps and you draw a line right outside the pro-choice dominion and draw another line right outside the pro-life dominion, what you end up with is the very genuine problem that without engaging in a lot of extremely ugly, perhaps criminal behavior, like kidnapping, like forced imprisonment, false imprisonment, uh, you really can't do anything to stop somebody. If the United States didn't have an abortion law, but some other country somewhere else in the world did, you might find that there's a lot of extremely wealthy women who spend a lot of time traveling to that other country. Number 17, doctors in training don't need to study abortion to be able to perform a life-saving procedure on a woman with a tragically terminating pregnancy. I mentioned earlier, you know, abortion is one of the things that end pregnancy, but miscarriage does as well, as does stillbirth. There are other consequences that are there. And this notion that uh, some of our more conservative presidents, George H.W. Bush, for example, had a notion that it probably would be totally acceptable in his mind for a doctor to perform an abortion in a critical life and death you know, you know, health circumstance for a woman, that he might not be willing to open up that floodgate and define almost anything as a health circumstance, but he could find a situation in his head where he would say, yeah, it does make sense that the woman's right to her own life supersedes any responsibility she has, even over somebody she has a special relationship with, and that at the very least, the state shouldn't have an opinion on that matter that trumps the woman's opinion. But here's the problem. If we ban the procedure from medical schools... If we stop anybody from performing it for any, any but that one exception out of a million, who in the world are we going to trust to perform the procedure? So you have a little bit of an issue there in that on the one hand, George H.W. Bush did everything in his power to make sure no doctor ever even learned how to do an abortion. And at the same time, had in his mind this naive idea that if an abortion were truly necessary, if there was an emergency, if the circumstances were bad enough, some doctor, a doctor that he had made sure never got training, was going to step in and save the day. Really? Number 18. Only a tiny number of women seek abortions due to rape, incest, or dire health circumstances. I'm just going to brush past this one for now and just say, you know what? That's a tiny number unless they come over for dinner tonight. If they come over for dinner tonight, it's an impossibly large number for you to deal with. So we've got to be very careful. Comparatively small? Yes. Even comparatively tiny. But that doesn't make it insignificant. Number 19, slogans like abortion is murder and God is pro-life have helped slow down the abortion rate. I'd love to see your statistical measurements on that because you must be saying that without this approach, the abortion rate would be astronomically out of control by now, that it wouldn't be measured in millions, it would be measured in tens of millions or perhaps hundreds of millions. Because from my perspective, the rate hasn't been held down at all. It's been alarmingly steady. At a certain point, we hit a certain plateau, and it's dipped a little bit up and down ever since then. But the abortion rate in this country has been a pretty, pretty sticky number. 
And if the approach that we are seeing from both the pro-choice movement and the pro-life movement has been in any way designed to sort of provide a control around that number, it's not working. Because a control around the number would make the number go down. And I'm not seeing it. Which means that if all you've got to offer is abortion is murder, then you might have to answer one day for why you've been so ineffective and why you were so closed-minded about being more effective by looking at a different approach. I'm not saying that compromise means you've got to give away the farm, but if you can't even have a conversation with somebody because your slogans are more important to you than the truth, then there's a real issue to be had. Because I'm not saying that I think we can wipe out the number of abortion completely. I think abortion has been a part of the United States experience since colonial times. And maybe I'll get to that topic uh, too at some point. But if we can't wipe it out completely, doesn't, does that absolve us of the responsibility of controlling some of it? Early on, I made a mention that I really get offended when people do what I call making better the enemy of best. That we're not willing to take a step from a bad situation into a less bad situation because we're going to hold the bad situation right where it's at until we get perfect. If you don't give me everything I want, I'm not going to do anything to compromise because the compromise that might save half a million kids a year, might save a million kids a year, is a step I'm unwilling to take unless I can save every single one of them. Well, you know what? Sometimes the road to the place you want requires some walking. And in this case, it, clearly, uh, God is pro-life is not a compelling endorsement of the pro-life position or of God, frankly, because neither one of them have been terribly effective in moving the dial on diminishing the numbers. We might need a different approach. Number 20, partial birth abortion is not the killing of a child within the process of giving birth. This is one of the things where, again, it, ter- it serves a pro-choice political purpose to say that partial birth abortion is something different than what it actually is. And I think that at some point, you've got to come along and say, listen, we have to be a little bit more honest with ourselves about what it is we're talking about doing. And if, you've, if your position is so firmly entrenched that you view anything, including the banning of a process that kills a child after it's been born – then I think that, you know, from a pro-choice perspective, you might want to read the, uh, the article called The Defense of Abortion by Judith Jarvis Thompson again and try to make an intelligent argument why she was wrong from your perspective. That's the deal. I haven't seen a lot of arguments short of the one that I maintain about the special relationship between mother and child. I haven't seen a lot of arguments that I look at and say, that's a persuasive reason why we probably shouldn't ban um, abortion at a certain point in time. There's a certain point where I think you've got to draw a line and say, listen, when the doctor's holding the child and the only thing left to do is cut the umbilical cord, it's a little bit too late to decide whether we're going to arbitrarily kill it or not. On the other hand, Judith Jarvis Thompson's essay is filled with other ideas, which in a very detailed and careful way challenge a lot of the assumptions that we've been handed from the pro-life movement, particularly the Catholic Church, and ask the question, you know, basically ask the question of what would we do if we were in that other person's shoes? It's a very empathic thing to do, and in many ways it's a very Christian thing to do, to say, you know what, I'm going to try on your perspective for a little while, because maybe my own position is naive. Maybe I'm a man who never has to worry about having an unwanted pregnancy in the most literal sense of the term. And maybe a lot of the things that I've assumed are true about the issue of abortion are based on false assumptions about the capabilities and and the integrity of women, or maybe they're based on some, you know, assumptions about women being property and children being property that we're not honest with enough with ourselves to acknowledge. There's that entire movement out there that says that, well, I'm the father and the father has rights too. Well, I'm not saying the father doesn't, 
What I'm saying is when the father's rights turn into territorial and property rights over a woman's body and a woman's sexuality, maybe we need to rethink that too. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. I recognize that this has been an entire inappropriate conversation where I've been basically trying to knock down ideas which I think are unstable or perhaps even false. And I certainly haven't done a good enough job conveying my perspective. And maybe my own perspective has some ideas about it that are also unstable and false. With apologies, I think you're going to have to wait for that. It makes sense for, to me for now that we at least take a look at that handful or so of things in the pro-choice side of the, of the movement where the assumptions don't hold up. Well, we're being a little bit naive about whether or not what's inside that pregnant woman is really going to be a person or not, you know, or on the other end of it, we've got, you know, quite a few things on the pro-life perspective, which may look good uh, on a bumper sticker, may sound good on a, on a soundbite, but absolutely don't hold up, don't make sense, and do not make for a very healthy debate when there's false assumptions going on on both sides of the issue. Let's take the opportunity before we get anywhere near having a serious discussion about what abortion is and what we ought to do about it to at least look inside, inside each one of our camps, inside each one of our hearts and ask ourselves whether the things we've assumed to be true actually make sense, whether we are conferring personhood on people based on an arbitrary point in the calendar where geography location matters more than anything else, or whether or not we've decided that, you know, a, a woman you know, is really just a victim inside this situation because, you know, she doesn't have the integrity to be held responsible for her own decisions or her own actions. We really have to question these things and at least get comfortable with the questions, if not develop some of our own answers for ourselves, before we can move the conversation forward. So I've used this opportunity to sort of set some terms. If you've got questions for me relating this, if I haven't set the terms clearly enough, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com. Also, the Podbean site has comments enabled at inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. No WWs there, just inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.
Music by Kevin McLeod.